12 years ago this month, I ran my first and only ever marathon. It was the Quad Cities Marathon, Western Illinois, Eastern Iowa. We ran across some sort of government island that people aren't normally allowed on. I was too tired, though, to appreciate this because that was like mile 13 or 14, and I was kind of struggling with it. I remember a few different things. I had to go to the bathroom at one point, just a quick pit stop. Wasn't anything too wild. But I did lose track of my pacer, who I had been staying with. But I think I outpaced him, and then that ended up hurting me in the long run because, again, I had never done a marathon before, and I thought, hey, I could go faster than this. Silly me, thinking I was smarter than someone who's done this probably 20 or 30 times in their life. I also remember researching my marathon arena, the field, what I would be running on, Quad Cities Marathon. From everything I could find, it was hilly the first three or four miles. You know, you had a couple of inclines, you had a couple of ridges that you'd have to climb over. Outside of that, nothing to worry about. So imagine my surprise when I'm turning onto the start of mile 11. I'm going straight, I'm making a left turn, and I look up and there's just a giant incline, a huge hill. It's a street, but it's like San Francisco level of just a horrible, steep angle, probably like 40 degree angle or something that I just didn't want to do. I didn't want to deal with. I would hate to deal with it had I not just run 10 miles, but here I was. And there was a volunteer on the side of the road and that poor kid, they didn't design the race. And yet I was just like, you said no more hills. You said no more hills. I screamed it at him saying, hey, there's no more hills. I was promised that these hills would be done by mile four. They weren't. I made it up the hill. I actually ran the first 15 miles of this race, aside from the little bathroom break where I was standing because, you know, that's you go to the bathroom. But outside of that, I ran the entire first half of the marathon. So that's my advice to people who are like, I want to run a half marathon. I say train like you're running a full marathon, and then you will be able to run a half marathon very easily. Then you'll hit a wall if you're running a full marathon. At least if you're like me, you'll hit a wall, and it will be pretty terrible, but you'll make some friends along the way. And that's really all you can ask for is having a great time. You got people cheering you on. You got signs. Even if you don't know them, they're cheering you on because they came out to support their group of friends or their family. But then you see other people running, and it's like, you know what? I'm going to support you too because it's a very supportive environment. It's pretty wonderful. And my guest today knows that maybe better than just about anyone. David Richman is a runner who's done hundreds of ultra marathons, regular marathons, which saying regular like it's not a crazy accomplishment is pretty wild to me. He's in all different sorts of runs, and he didn't start running as an adult until he was 38 years old. We're going to talk about that in this episode and how it was the lowest point of his life when he kind of decided, you know what, I'm making a change, I'm going to start running, and how he's been able to accomplish these different goals along the way. David is also the author of the book Cycle of Lives, which looks at 15 different stories from people who have been impacted by cancer and how they have made it through their journey from learning about cancer, whether it was themselves being diagnosed with it or a loved one. David chats with them about their journey, and it's a very impactful and powerful book. And all of the proceeds get donated to cancer organizations who are doing research and looking for ways to cure cancer because F cancer. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at GPCT Podcast, but let's not worry about any of that right now. Let's just get into our conversation with David. 
to kick off, can you give us your name and elevator pitch, but also the type of elevator that we're riding on? Oh, geez. Well, we're riding on a glass elevator, of course. Uh, super high. My name is David Richmond. I'm an author um, and um, businessman, cook. Uh, geez, uh, you name it. I do a lot of things. But um, yeah, I think my number one most important thing I do is is writing. Um, I, I also do a lot of endurance athletics, so um, I'm, I'm kind of always training and always prepping for the next big event. We'll get into some of that endurance discussion. I You might be proud of me or maybe disappointed, I don't know, but I, I went for a run today, um, perhaps inspired by our conversation. I was like, I'm not a... I used to run a lot more. I did run one marathon back in the day and have kind of fallen off in pandemic times but i got out this morning it was under 80 degrees in austin so that's uh that's basically a cold front out here so it was very that is a cold especially at this time of year the last event that i did before the pandemic shut everything down was the austin half marathon on a valentine's weekend of 2020 that's a lovely time yeah it's awesome it was a beautiful run i love i love running in austin man i i love it nice nice yeah it's a good it's a good city for that for sure and you talked about how writing is perhaps the most important thing um that you've been doing and you have a new book cycle of lives which features 15 stories from people and we'll we'll kind of get into the behind the scenes i guess of the the book coming together Mm -hmm. but was this a, a story that because obviously the the impetus of it is something that's affected you personally of knowing someone who was who uh had cancer and and passed away from cancer and did you know that this book that you wanted to feature other stories or was it something that kind of built up over time you were talking to people and it's like wait a minute there's there's some good stuff here um more the latter so um i I had already written books and i was working on some fiction books and and other things and then all of a sudden um when my sister was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer uh i kind of noticed that people were really good at dealing with the tasks related to their cancer. So how do I get to the chemo chair and how do I get my kids watched and how do I sleep better and eat better? And like they could wrap their brains around the the tasks of it. But when it came to the emotional side, like whoever I talked to, it didn't matter if it was doctors or nurses or volunteers or, you know, uh, uh, you know, lab techs, survivors, loved ones, family members, coworkers, whatever. Like when it came to the emotional side, Joey, they were like, um, yeah, no, I'd rather not talk about it. Or you don't know what to say to people who are going through something. Like you could say, hey, can I bring you a casserole? But you're not going to say like, geez, what do you say to your kids when you come home feeling really that sick? Like, is it scary for you? I mean, we don't really uh, – um, entertain the hard conversations and i noticed that over and over and over and there was no matter who i spoke to there was that recurring theme of gosh i don't know what to say or i I don't know i don't know what people could ever tell me when it came to the emotional side so that's what drew me into this project is to try to figure out why is that and with the people that you ended up talking to how did you like how did you go about finding these people and and figuring out like, Hey, you're going to be in my book. So if you're going to write like a book about music, right. And like, you want to cover all genres of music, right? Well, you go, okay, well, I'm going to, I got to get different 
ages and different types and different types of music and you know all different forms and modes and instruments it was the same thing with this when it came to the emotional side of it we all kind of have the same basic emotions they're the same basic notes across all kinds of music we all have the same basic emotions but uh, the emotions are very different depending on what kind of childhood traumas you had um put, put it in relation to are, are you fearful are you apprehensive are you angry some people have gratitude because it answers questions getting some kind of diagnosis takes them out of the dark some people are affected differently if they had let's say deal with cancer their whole lives uh, as an oncologist perhaps or maybe someone that had cancer five different times their in their life or somebody that had can just the fear of cancer sometimes can can really elicit a lot of trauma so what i wanted to try to do is to try, take as much of a 360 view as i could so young old one and done cancer, cancer their whole life, um, lost somebody to cancer. It just barely touched them. I wanted everything, all kinds of emotional responses. So I went looking for people that have really evocative, interesting, inspirational, kind of really moving stories where I could go, oh, so when you say like people, you know, go through stuff, we never know what they're really going through. Like this really uncovers that. Like I, I pull the blanket off and show you really what the heck is going on behind that thought of we never know what's going on now i imagine in the process of putting this together that you talk to people who had more interesting stories than others and i assume the the more interesting ones and the the variety is what ended up making the book and i'm i'm basing this off of this was years ago i shortly when i started my writing career i responded to a fellow writer who was looking for examples of when they had a like a truly hellish client, like a nightmare client. Mm -hmm. And I reached out and I was like, hey, I think I might have something that fit. And as soon as I started telling her about it, I could just hear in her voice. It was a, just a phone call, but like her, her follow-up question I could just hear was like, this isn't going to make my article. This is not like I've right. talked to people who have had much worse things, which yep. was good in one case where I was like, okay, at least I haven't dealt with like that much of a nightmare uh, comparatively. Yep. But I just knew like she's not going to use me. I ended up reading the article. I was not in it. Not surprised. So were there people that were maybe, I don't know if they were maybe expecting to be in the book, but like you talked with them and you were like, oh, you know, this, even if they had a good story, it was, it just like didn't fit with the rest of the book. And, and was there any kind of like disappointment out of that? Yeah. And that's a great question because what, what it was more along the lines of is, see, here's what I was doing, right? So point A is when you encounter cancer. So it might be as a, eighth grader on a field trip to the hospital. It might be as a six-year-old watching a parent die of cancer. It might be as an adult watching your friend go through cancer. But whenever you encounter cancer is point A. Point B is today. How do you navigate the emotional side of A to B in relation to all the traumas that you've had in your life before? So for example, drug addiction, abuse, abandonment, um, making bad decisions, being dealt really bad hand in life. So because I, I wanted to say I could maybe not understand what it's like to go through cancer. Maybe I cannot understand the emotions behind that, but I certainly can understand these other traumas. And if I understand those other traumas and how they might affect you when you're going through something acutely, um, then that gives me a better insight into how to connect with you. So what was more often the case was not that people weren't interesting or they didn't have inspiring or evocative stories, but that we weren't able to get to the heart of it. 
Because you know how sometimes when you say to somebody, you go, oh, my God, like, like, tell me about when you grew up. And they start to tell you and they're like, ah, you know, it's not even that interesting. And you're sitting there going, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's like the most interesting ever. Right. And they go, oh, you know, whatever. I don't want to talk about. It. So it, it was a matter of if I could get deep into people's stories. Now, some of the stories are really crazy. Right. Like one of the ladies, um, her fear of cancer came from. In the days leading up to the fall of Vietnam, she lived in in, in Saigon. In in the days leading up to the fall of Vietnam, um, her dad, as the world is crumbling around her and she's this little girl, is saying like everything bad that's going to happen is like a cancer, right? Oh, this cancer around us, this cancer here, and you don't want to give me bad news because it's like giving me cancer and blah. And she's this little girl, right? They escape the last day of before Saigon falls, and they come to America. She becomes a doctor above all odds or whatever. But in her whole life, she's thinking, oh, my God, the fear of cancer. Cancer means the ruin of everything. Cancer means the worst thing that could ever happen. So she's always fearful of getting cancer. Now, if you told me, like somebody walking down the street says, hey, I'm pretty afraid of getting cancer, I might go, okay, that's kind of a boring story. But if you say to me, hey, I'm kind of a fearful of getting cancer, why is that? Well, because I lived my whole life afraid of getting cancer. Well, why is that? Because you know what? When I was a kid, and then she goes on to tell you the story, you're like, whoa, you know, like that's evocative. That I can understand. So when she, when somebody says, like, yeah, you know, I don't have cancer, but I'm really, really scared of getting it and how traumatic that could be in relation to what she had to go through as a child. Imagine escaping Vietnam in the last day before Saigon falls and under that kind of emotional duress, then I can go, oh, maybe I can gain something from that. So a, a lot of the people that I spoke to, either I wasn't able to ask the right questions or they weren't able to go there. Every once in a while, the story wasn't terribly evocative, but most stories are if you can just get to what the heart of the issue is. And I spoke to people for like a year, year and a half and, and sometimes two years, Joey. And when you're getting that deep with people that are experiencing a, acute you know, primary or secondary trauma. And in relation to other difficulties that they had in their life, then it starts really becoming interesting. So I think most of the stories are kind of jaw dropping, even though each one of them, multiple times during my talks with them, were like, yeah, this isn't interesting. Nobody really cares because they're just living their life. You were saying how a year and a half, two years with these people, are you still in touch with, with all of them today? Not all of them. I'm in touch with, uh, let's see, I, I'm close friends with a few. They've turned into very close friends. Uh, I am a friendly with a few. Um, a, a couple have passed away. Um, and and a few, th this was their exercise and my exercise to do together. And we would say hello to each other if we had the chance, but we're not, we're not in contact. Um, but the cool thing about the, the book, Joey, is that, is that all the stories are or not well there's two stories that are anonymous because they needed to protect some people that were that, that were in the in, in the stories with them but but uh 13 of the 15 are are you could go look up the names and where they work and who they are and what their kids are it's all real and so what's really cool is that none of it's contrived and everybody kind of knew going into it what the goal was and so when you don't have anything to hide and you reveal everything, you just kind of like, it's all good. And you bond with each other on a different level. And so 
you know, when you see somebody in their most vulnerable, you know, emotionally naked, you know, state, and you're just there with them, listening, hearing them, and then eventually writing their story, it's hard to not be friends with them because we've connected in a way. I mean, like, like I said, when people said that my story wasn't that interesting, I can't tell you how many times each person said to me, uh, yeah, we can talk about that, but I've never really talked about that before with anyone. And so we got to bond on a different level. So it'd be, it'd be pretty crappy of me if we didn't, uh, if we didn't remain friends, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's part of the <laughs> promotion for the book. Uh, yeah. You biked 5,000 miles in six weeks, which I was trying to do some quick math in my head. I don't think, and I would consider myself a, a fan of bike riding. My bike yeah. is currently uh, in an undrivable condition because I need to uh, get some new tires on it. But I, I'd say I like going for bike rides. I don't even think I've hit 5,000 miles throughout the course of my life on right. my bike. So what did you learn along the way of doing that in a month and a half? Well, actually, I did bike through Austin uh, from, I went, I, I got into Texas. I was, I left LA, San Diego, Arizona, New Mexico, came into Texas through post and then made my way over. I don't even remember every place I went, but then went to Dallas, then came down to Austin and then went, went up to Houston and then, and then out. And, and I know obviously Austin has a huge biking history. Um, but yeah, I put in about like 120 miles a day for 41 out of 45 days and it was pretty brutal in fact um i in between each one of the 15 stories is a little expose of it that's the story of my bike ride um the emotions behind losing my sister to cancer and then some of the people i met along the way and i met a lot of really cool people along the way that have these poignant little stories so i put the transitions between each one of the 15 stories is one of those little exposés on the bike ride. And two of the transitions actually are about Texas. I have there one's entitled days and days in Texas, part one. And the other is days and days in Texas, part two. Cause when you're trying to bike through Texas, man, it takes a long time. <laughs> oh yes. Yes. I have never uh, attempted that, but even just driving through Texas, I'm just like, we're still in Texas. You've yeah. been driving for so long. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I think I put I probably put close to eight hundred or a thousand miles in Texas. Yeah, Oof. brave, brave soul, brave soul. Oof. I like it in the summer. Uh, no. oh, oh, I don't, I don't like that. But <laughs> having been then throughout all these different parts of the country, mm -hmm. let's put let's put some praise for either a city or a state that was super biker friendly. Uh, that would not be Philadelphia. <laughs> Okay, it would uh, it would not be pretty much anywhere in Virginia. Uh, it would not be Houston. Screw Houston. Houston is the <laughs> least bike friendly town in the history of the world. I mean, they have zero bike lane, but there are a lot of bike friendly uh, places. You know, the problem is when I was going a point A to point B, Joy, each day, I was mostly on the interstates. So, like, there's not a lot of bike friendly space on an interstate. Yeah. So I would say not really, but I, I did get off the interstate quite a bit uh, for, you know, 20 miles here or a day there. Um, and I'd say Austin is a great uh, a bike town. Um, certainly the Gulf coast is, is fantastic. Um, really love that. And then once you get um, kind of like North of Philadelphia, like DC up, it's, it's really bike friendly. So 
Um, I mean, it's, it's all beautiful, right? But you got to be a little bit more aware when you're in Texas, you got to, you got to, especially in Houston, man, you, oh, that was some scary days in Houston. <laughs> Beyond biking, you also do a ton of running and, mm-hmm. and marathon and long distance runs, um, triathlons, things like that. So going way back to the very first run you ever did, do you remember it? I, I would assume so but who yep. knows maybe maybe you stop keeping track at some point but yep. i and what was what was that like oh my god i i do remember it it's it, it will never leave my brain because I, I was 38 years old i had just uh left um a, a violent marriage um i was married to an abusive alcoholic and and had four-year-old twins and i was an overweight smoker and I was completely stressed out. It was like the lowest time in my life. And I just one day through a number of circumstances, uh, uh, forced myself and, and, and allowed myself to look in the mirror and say like, who are you and what are you doing? And what have you become? And what do you want to become? And I just did this like major, like reflection time. And one of the things I said, Joey was like, dude, you're a fat smoker what the hell are you doing? Right. So the only way, and I didn't want to fail at quitting smoking. I, I was a smoker for 20 years. I never tried to quit because I didn't ever want to fail at it. You know, and then, then, then it would be okay to fail. So I never tried to quit. So when I did finally say, okay, you got to care about the guy in the mirror. Um, the first thing I said was, well, then become a runner because you can't run and smoke. I mean, I guess you could, but I mean, logically you really can't. <laughs> so, the very first, so I, I remember that I was afraid that I was going to look like a big dork running. So I hired a run coach over the phone and I go, Hey, meet me at the, I lived in, in Southern California. I said, meet me at the Santa Monica Pier and teach me how to run. And he goes, yeah, I'd love to. So, and we get there and he goes, okay, we're going to go on, on, on like a, on, on a couple mile run. We're going to start by going two minutes at a very slow jog so I can measure your gait you know, see how you're doing. Mm-hmm. I said, Oh yeah, that sounds good. I, I could not make it to two minutes, like a minute and a half in, I sat down on, on a planter and I was just like, I'm done. Like I, I couldn't even run two minutes. What the hell is that? So, and, and I'm, I'm not saying run. I mean like jog, like slow jog two minutes. That was the very first run that I ever did as an adult. And I was just like, wow, man, that is not right. So the next day I, I ran a little bit further, a little bit further. Finally, a, you know, later that week I did a one mile run. And then uh, five, six weeks later, I did a 5k and then I did a half, half Ironman. And then I did a full Ironman and all of a sudden now like running became normal. Were you setting goals along the way? And if so, what did that kind of look like? Cause I think, you know, just general fitness goals, I think are a lot of, or, or improving fitness, I think, is a goal for a lot of people. But I think it can be easy to give up on if you don't have, you know, some sort of plan or progress that you're working towards. So what did that look like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in business, right, I, I was really pretty successful in business, but that's because, like, I had to achieve certain goals to get to where I needed to get to. And those goals were usually laid out. You got to head, you know, do what you can to reach those goals, whatever. Same thing in life. Like, you know, I, I don't think any, I don't think I ever set any of my own goals. I just kind of did things and try to achieve them based on what I thought I needed to do or how other people might judge me or whatever. 
when it came to athletics, I went, oh, well, God, uh, maybe I should set my own goals. And so how low do I need to set them? How high do I need to set them? I don't know. But if if somebody, like I remember the six weeks in, I did a 5K and I told some people and they're like, dude, you're like a smoker. You can't run three miles. And I go, well, I just did. And they go, okay, <laughs> well, I bet you couldn't do a, a, a 10K. And I'm like, no, nah, I think I can. So I, I did a 10K. And then I said, well, I'm going to start doing triathlons. And I remember doing a sprint triathlon with a couple of buddies. And then the day it ended, I go, hey, I'm going to sign up for an Olympic distance triathlon, which is basically, you know, t- twice the, the length of a short triathlon. And they looked at me like I was nuts. And I they go, you can't do something like that. Like, that's that's ridiculous. You got to train for like six months. And I go, no, nah, I think I could do it in like a month. And so I did. And so I, I think with with uh athletics is to, is to learn that you, you only are are limited by the amount of work you want to put in to achieve the goal now if, if i said to you joey hey go out and run your second marathon in a week and do it under four hours it's not possible you're gonna hurt yourself mm-hmm. right but but if you said hey i want to run a marathon and i want to do it in three three months and i'd like to be able to do it at a at a pace that allows me to be around the four hour mark and i'd like to not walk then i go Oh, you could put in the work to be able to do that. Absolutely. If you said, hey, six months from now, I want to run a hundred mile race. I go, yeah, as long as you're willing to put in the work, you could do that. So I think that the the cool thing about athletics for somebody who's just doing it for themselves, not doing it, you know, for a living or whatever else, but you're just doing it because you want to do it is the the goal is never higher than if you're willing to put in the work. So if you're willing to put in the work, the goal is what I, if, if I had the time, I would love, 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 love to run across the country. And I'm sure I could do it, but I have to put in the training in order. To, I don't have the time to do that. And who has time to run across the country, but that would be really cool. So anybody, anybody could do it. If you, if you set, set whatever goal, as long as you're willing to put in the, 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 the training. So that, that's the cool thing about it. Yeah, maybe Forrest Gump could um, put in the time for that. But yes, um, I one one other thing that uh, when when you were talking about the training, it took me back to when I was training for a marathon. You know, you're running several times a week, and you've got kind of shorter runs earlier on, and then Saturday for me it was like the long run of the week. Yep. So eventually, you're getting pretty close to marathon length. And I remember someone asked, you know, why do you run a certain amount? And for me, it was because. That's what a, a training program I found online said. I didn't really have the science behind it. But I liked my friend's reason of if you ran a full marathon while you were training, you probably wouldn't run the race because you've already that's done so, it. And I was, that's hilarious. I was like, yep. that's pretty, that's a good reason. I like it. But one of the things for, especially for the long runs where, you know, I'd be running 10, 15, 20 miles. One of the motivations was I knew I'd give myself a little treat at the end of it of there was a frozen yogurt place near where I went shout out to yep. loves yogurt they don't exist anymore <laughs> very devastating but i would always get a strawberry frozen yogurt with reese's peanut butter cups sprinkled on top and it was a delightful way to kind of just you know get my breath back and everything i and, and something that i would look forward to at the end of a long run so do you have a post or even a pre-run treat that you consistently have or, or do you like to mix it up or do you not have anything you just run no that's really it's such a great point because you made me think about the fact that that you know when you when the reward is chosen for you it might not motivate you like if somebody would to say to you joey 
uh, you got to do X, Y, Z for the next three hours. And then at the end of it, I'm going to give you a love yogurt with, you might be like, no, it's it's like, it's not worth it to me. Like that's not a motivator for me. But the fact that that reward was a motivator for you to put in that app, that is awesome. I mean, I love that concept because, um, you know, it's like if if I told you, Hey, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, go walk on a ladder between two buildings for a million bucks. You might be like, Oh, hell no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) But if I said, well, you could, you could have a lifetime, uh, um, uh, of, of Fridays off and a, and a lifetime supply of Love's yogurt, you might be like, oh, I'm walking across that, <laughs> that ladder, like no big deal. Right. So I, it, it's really funny. So for, for me, I, I think that, um, that the rewards are not a specific one, but I, 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 I definitely don't find any guilt in rewarding myself after putting out a good effort because I'm choosing to put out the effort and therefore I should choose the reward. I got no problem with that math. I love, I love it. I like it. Yeah. It's you know, math I'm, we can I'm, get behind. <laughs> yeah. I'd much rather do something that's really difficult if I'm forcing myself to do it and I get to pay myself off the way I want to, than if somebody's telling me to do it and they're paying me off the way they think they should pay me off. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Another question I always like to ask is a question you wish you were asked more frequently. And you know this, having written multiple books, that one of the best ways to market the book you've just released is to write another book and then have yep. that come out. So what's your next book going to be about? Oh, my gosh. So uh, I just rewrote a companion piece that I have for, for a book that's a, um, a guidebook to, to your first 5K, 10K, or sprint triathlon. Because I'm noticing that there still is so many people I've never done a 5K, a 10K, or a sprint triathlon. They don't even know where to start. So that's like a 70-page companion piece for my uh, uh, first non-industry-specific book, which was Winning in the Middle of the Pack. Um, the Cycle of Life's book, we, we both know there's not a lot of money in books, but um, but all the proceeds that come in on the Cycle of Life's book, which is about the 15 people and the bike ride and all that, all that goes to cancer uh, charities and hospitals. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Awesome, man. Uh, I have probably like four or five different um, fiction books that are in the works. So I'm hopeful that the next book I put out will be one of those. I am writing another book on expressive writing, though. So that actually might come out first. It's a nonfiction book on expressive writing because I do expressive writing workshops. And I do them in a way that's different than traditional expressive writing. So. That might, I might actually come out with that book first. I'm not sure yet. Well, spoken like a true writer of multiple books going, <laughs> going at once, I'd like to see it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, David, you're almost off the hook here, but we always like to wrap up with a top three. And you mentioned at the top that in addition to being a writer, to participating in all these races, you're also a cook. So what are your top oh. three methods of cooking? Oh my gosh. You know, I've got a friend who he's actually a DJ. He's coming over to the house in a couple of weeks to do a big, like all night set and have fun and enjoy his birthday with his wife and kid and friends and kids and stuff. And he said, Hey, why don't we throw in a cooking competition too? Like we'll do like a chopped or something like a cooking competition. And one of the things that I love about cooking is the way different ways you can cook. So we have a smoker, we have a pizza oven, you got barbecue. You got the regular oven, you got a sous vide, whatever. Mm-hmm. I really love cooking with a smoker, a, a traditional smoker. So not one of those pellets and set it and walk away. Like 
you got to figure it out along the way. I love that. And I built a pizza oven, um, really gorgeous pizza oven. And, and so I like to use that to cook casseroles, pizzas, breads, all that desserts, everything. And then I love the sous vide, you know, which is a cooking in a vacuum sealed bag with water and something's cooking an hour, something's cooking 60 hours. And it's just, it's unbelievable. It's a fun way. So my three ways to favorite ways to cook are with a smoker, with a pizza oven, and with the sous vide. Love it. And of course, a follow-up, because anytime there's a pizza mentioned, it's a two-parter. Do you have a go-to for pizza toppings? And what is your stance on pineapple on pizza? Uh, that's a good second question. <laughs> so my wife's favorite pizza is pepperoni, pineapple, and jalapeno. And boy, are people like, they're in all, either pep, pineapple's the best thing on pizza or pineapple doesn't belong on pizza. Right. Yeah. That's the way people think. So I, my take on pineapple is because it makes other people happy. I'll put it on there. But I'm not a massive fan myself. Mm. But um, I don't have a favorite type of pizza. You name it. Pear, brie, cheese and arugula or just a meat lovers pizza or, you know, a pesto based pizza with carne asada. You name it. I just love all different kinds of pizza. So I don't really have a go to except when I'm making pizzas. Never does anybody turn away a sliced pepperoni. So it's a classic for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I like it. Yeah, I'm. I think I'm. I'm in the pro. I, I know you said people either love it or hate it, and I've, I'm kind of in the middle on pineapple on pizza. I'll, I'll, I'll enjoy it. Um, yeah, I'll enjoy but yeah. it. Yeah, but I, I'm not asking for yeah. it, but I'll eat it. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Love, love a good pizza connoisseur. Uh, and we're exactly. equal opportunities for pizza toppings over here. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, David, this was so much fun. I, I I mentioned it that it's been pouring rain outside, so I'm picturing running and, and that kind of element. And it's just, I, I'm sure you've done that many a time where it's just uh, the, the weather is not your friend, but you're powering through. Yeah, I, I, I prefer the hot weather running. So I live in Vegas. So like today it was 108. I did a run today. So I don't mind running in the heat. Um, Running in water, rain, and stuff is fun, but not not with lightning because that's a little dangerous, <laughs> and it could lead to some bad blisters or whatever. But yeah, I, I think if you fall in love with running, it doesn't matter if it's hot, cold, windy, rainy, dry, desert, mountains, doesn't matter. You'll you find a way to love it. I I definitely love it still. Love it, love it. And if people want to learn more about you or check out any of your books that you've written, where can they find mm -hmm. you? Uh, you could just go to Amazon where all books are sold and, and, and look up David Richmond and, and my books will come up. Or you can go to cycleoflives.org, cycleoflives.org, uh, and that'll talk about you know all the things I'm doing in the books and the charities that we're supporting and all of that good stuff. Fantastic. Well, go check it out. And uh, excited to see what you come up with next. Thank you, Joey. I appreciate that. Absolutely. We got in with a corny joke, as we always do. How did the lawyer who suffered an ACL tear still win the race? I don't know. He had power of a torn knee. Oh, my goodness. Today, people. That's ridiculous. And you know what? My <laughs> wife's an attorney, so I always love a good, I always love a good lawyer joke. And, and, and I'm going to, can I give you one? Just, yes, just, absolutely. Just since we're on lawyer jokes, did, did you hear that it was so cold on the East Coast the other day? They actually spotted a lawyer walking down the street with his hands in his own pockets. <laughs> 
Uh, oh, that's great. We love you, lawyers. Yes, we do. I'm married <laughs> to one. I love them all. <laughs> Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.